into it, but certainly a joy to have her in the service this morning. And to see God's hand of healing there and His uh, giving her recovery, we thank the Lord for it. So many things that we have to be thankful for, God's answered. And uh, what a joy. Proverbs chapter 14, if you will. We'll read a verse of Scripture and then turn to another passage. Verse number 12, the proverb says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. If you'll turn over to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse number 25, a verse that is almost exactly the same and yet says it again. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Father, we pray that you would bless the message this morning, and Lord, use it as you would see fit. I pray that you would help us to understand the truth of it, that we would be reminded of it very clearly. And then, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide and direct us in the best course of action, the best way to use these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Two different times in Proverbs, the Bible says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And I understand this, that we hold in our hands uh, what we believe to be the inspired and preserved uh, and uh, inerrant Word of God. And for English-speaking people, we believe that to be in the King James Version of Scripture. And uh, we say we believe that. It really doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. It's still the truth. And uh, so... Uh, one of these things that I have puzzled over over the years is how do you take the mind uh, of an infinite God and condense it into a book? And He uh, gave us this book so that we could understand how to be able to come to Him and be saved first and foremost. The, the story of redemption is found throughout the pages from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. You find that the entirety of the Scripture points to the redemption of man being the heart of God and the desire of God. And then we find that there is a secondary reason for the Scripture, and that is to teach us as God's people how we're to live once we are saved. God reveals Himself to us through, first of all, in the Old Testament, He started by giving us the law to let us know His heart about issues and matters. And some of that law was given distinctively for the nation of Israel, uh, for no other reason than to set them apart as a peculiar people uh, so that they would be identified as His chosen people. And a few of those types of laws do not apply to us today, uh, but we're simply there for a way of identification. But what does apply to us is the fact that God does intend for His, His children, those that have trusted Christ as, as their Savior, to live a life that is peculiar, that is distinct, that is something that the world can see there's a difference that God has made in the lives of each person that has trusted Him as Savior. The Bible tells us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And some people change faster than others. Have you noticed that? Uh, there are some people, when they get saved, I mean, we call it really getting saved. Now, they, they, we know that they got saved just like everybody else did. But their zeal, their excitement to grow in the Lord, to just they don't know anything better than to just... Read the Bible and believe that it's true. Uh, you remember those days when we just took the Word of God at face value and said, that's, that's what it says, that must be what He means. 
And by the way, that, that has never changed God's desires for all of us to be that way. But it's amazing how when we get saved, we're so zealous for the Lord. And, and then others, maybe they're a little bit slower. They're learning. They, they don't know some things. And they're trying to dig into Scripture and find out some things. They weren't raised in Sunday school or church or in uh, homes that took them to church very often. And so they're a little bit slower. But there's always something that is different inside of a person that trusts Christ as their Savior. We live in a world today where, to be honest with you, there's a lot of people who are very uh, religious-minded. Uh, there are a number of folks who don't have anything to do with God. And in recent years, we've seen such a departing uh, from uh, the things of the Lord and from Scripture. Uh, I was talking to a fellow just yesterday over the phone, and I introduced myself <coughs> as the pastor here. And for the next four or five minutes, as we were talking on the phone, uh, he began to use vulgarities and cussing. And uh, I thought, you know, there was a day when people would not curse in front of a pastor or in front of a, uh, a lady in, in public. And uh, these things that used to even unsaved people would hold dear and at least had some kind of an idea that the things of the Lord were of a sacred nature. But we're living in a world where we have, as Christians, brought God down to a man's level. And we've tried to make Him more appealing and more acceptable to the world. And the truth is, the world looks at our God and they see nothing really a whole lot different between Him and what they're doing. We, 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 we have so-called churches, we have so-called ministries that will uh, today they will meet and have thousands of people in their uh, congregation. And the men of God will get up, uh, these men that call themselves preachers will get up in the pulpits and they will begin to preach a Christ that is not found in this Bible. And they'll begin to teach about uh, things that will help make their lives more successful or more happy or more joyful. And the truth of the matter is what they need to hear is what the Bible has to say. What they need to hear is the truth of God's Word so that it will make an impact and it will make a difference in our lives. Two different times Solomon speaks here as he writes these Proverbs under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And God does not take this book that he has uh, and, and try to find fillers for it. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, when I was in high school and had to write those English papers, uh, and we had to, uh, it had to be so many words. You ever do that and you count them and you're 50 words short? And so you go back and you put very in there about 20 times, and that takes up some of them. And uh, then you put or, and you put another synonym for the word that you use to kind of draw it out. God did not do that in writing His Word. And if something is in the Bible more than once, it is there by way of emphasis. It is there by way of God trying to get our attention. It's not for His benefit, it's for ours. Because the truth is, you and I have brains that leak. You ever notice that? Uh, I, I used to be a youth pastor years ago, and uh, I would announce uh, to the young people in Sunday school uh, about an upcoming youth event. And after a couple of years of realizing a lot of young people didn't come to the youth event because mom and dad never knew about it, and I would go to them and I'd say, why didn't you come to the youth event? And they'd say, I forgot. You ever had somebody do that to you? As I get older, I forget way more than I did when I was a teenager. And uh, I learned that I had to repeat things often. I learned that sometimes I, I couldn't just go to the teenager and tell them. I had to go to mom and dad and make sure they knew. And so it's important for us sometimes to understand that when God reiterates something in Scripture, it is there primarily for a way of emphasis and to help us sit up and take notice that, listen, uh, you, your brains are, are finite. They're going to forget some things, but this is a truth that warrants not forgetting. And that is that there is a tendency, there is a propensity of people to believe that what they are doing is right 
When in actuality, it's not pleasing to the Lord, and it certainly, as it speaks of here, is a way to destruction. The Apostle Paul is a wonderful example of this. Before he was saved, uh, he was a man who uh, seemed to do what was right. In fact, his heart was that he was uh, very zealous for God. And yet he was going around uh, arresting Christians and uh, putting them into prisons and seeing them uh, persecuted and even some of them being put to death for the cause of Christ. And he did all of this sincerely believing that he was right. We live in a day where there are a lot of people in the world who believe that what they are doing in their life sincerely is right. And there is a need, there is a dire need for God's people to come back to God's Word and to measure our lives and to find out, am I doing the things that are right according to God? Or are these just things that I hold to myself? I remember in the 1980s as I was uh, growing up through high school and had to do some term papers, and one of the uh, subject matters that I had to write about was the issue of humanism in that day and what was transpiring in our civilization. And the idea that uh, there are no moral absolutes was being propagated. Uh, The only absolute they said there was was that there are no absolutes. And I don't know how you can say that and, and say that that's an absolute, but uh, they would come out, and you, some of you can remember those days when people were starting to, uh, to question the standard of morality of a nation that had been founded on the principles of the Word of God. And they began to question those things, and they were being raised by a generation who had not been raised in church and were starting to depart from the Bible. And we began to take God out of our country. We began to take God out of our schools. And sad to say, it began by taking God out of our homes. We began to think we were doing right. We began to read books by men that had psychology degrees and had college educations and doctorates degrees, and we assumed that they knew what they were talking about. And we began to take the authority of men over the authority of God's Word, and there were ways that seemed right unto man, but the end thereof were the ways of death. There's a whole world today. I was listening a number of years ago, and I've shared this before, to a, a quote-unquote Christian uh, media station. Uh, they uh, have a way of propagating the gospel by means of television and uh, things that were on the, on the screen. And I remember sitting there listening to uh, an interview that they were giving. And they made a comment they, where they were going back and reliving the early days of the ministry and how they started with just one station and then multiple stations and then satellites, and now they cover all of the earth. And I remember them making the statement. They said, we believe now that 98% of the world are saved and on their way to heaven because of this ministry. And I thought, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. There are some things that I think you and I need to be careful of when it comes to this. Number one, are we certain that we are right according to Scripture? Are we certain that we are right according to Scripture? I don't want to be one of the victims of Proverbs 14 or Proverbs 16, of being a person that thinks that he is right, when in actuality I'm wrong and going down the wrong way. I want to make sure that I'm right. And the only way that I know to do that is to take my life and the things that I do in my life and to line them up with the only source of truth that I know in this world, and that would be the Word of God. 
we so often in our churches preach uh, against the world and, and we point our focus at the world and we say we need to stay away from them. And I have no problem preaching on those things and I think they ought to be preached on from time to time. But if we're not careful, if all of our preaching is about the world, the world, the world, and we do very little preaching of saying the Word of God is the standard. This is what we have to, to reach for. This is what we're to be pressing toward the mark of. Then we'll get the idea that our, our sole authority uh, of our moral center is based on where the world is and how far away I am from it. And that should never be the standard. That should never be the measurement of our life. The measurement of our life ought to be how close am I to the Word of God. How much have I followed the obedience of, uh, the, obeyed the commands of God? We've been studying in Sunday school uh, a survey of uh, the books of the Bible. We were in First Samuel this morning. And one of the overlying things that we were learning about this particular book was the disappointment that God had in Saul simply because he did not obey his commandments. So much so that when Samuel confronted him, he told Saul, he said, uh, to obey is better than sacrifice. It doesn't matter how much, how zealous you are for the Lord and how much you outwardly try to, uh, to act like you love God with all of your heart. If we lack in obedience to His Word, then we are struggling in a way that seems right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. It's amazing to me how many people I come across and I ask the question or I'll bring up the subject of their soul's eternity, and I'll ask them, how do you know for sure that you can go to heaven? What is it that you have to do to go to heaven? And out of all of the people that I ask, the vast majority of them will say something along these lines. Well, you have to live a good life. You have to make sure that you, know, you, do, you do unto others what you would want done to you. And uh, you know, I think if I just live a good life and I, I try to do right, that God will give me a place in heaven. Can I tell you this? They believe sincerely that they are right on the issue. But the truth is, the end thereof are the ways of death. Look with me, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. I want us to look at several things that we need to make sure we are right on. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2 and verse number 14. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are what? Spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of of Christ. Can I encourage us in this? There are three types of people that the Bible speaks of very clearly. One of them is the natural man. We've read about him here in 1 Corinthians. The natural man is the man who has not trusted Christ as his Savior. The Spirit of God does not live inside of him. There is no light of the Holy Spirit illuminating the truth of His Word in the heart of that man. And so when he hears the truth of God's Word, he looks at it as foolishness. By the way, uh, it doesn't take very long to look around and to see that the philosophy of this world is exactly opposite to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it was amazing when Christ came on the scene in His earthly ministry, how many people began to flock to Him. The multitudes would come and hear Him teach because they had never heard such things. Forgive your enemy. Do good to them that hurt you. 
Pray for them which despitefully use you. That wasn't the world's philosophy, was it? The world's philosophy was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and I'm going to get my vengeance. For God to get up and say that you can't keep the law and make it to heaven. That the keeping of the law, the Bible says, shall no man be justified. The law was never intended to justify man. It's intended to show us our shortfall of meeting God's standard. Here we have the natural man. He doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. The Bible says, because they're foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. He may think he's right. It may seem that the things that he holds to are the right way. But the truth of it is, it really is leading him down a path of destruction. The second type of person the Bible speaks of is the spiritual man. The spiritual man is the man who has trusted Christ as his Savior. We're to walk in the Spirit, the Bible says, and quite often throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks of the fact that you and I, as God's children, are to walk in the Spirit. We're to live consciously of His presence, and we're to go through our life. And by the way, if we would ever live fully conscious of the Holy Spirit inside of us, it would change the way we live. Our life, we preach oftentimes on being holy and having a testimony for God and being different from the world and making sure that we're in line with God's Word. Can I tell you, when we are aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us, it changes the way we live. We're to walk in the Spirit daily. And the spiritual man is a man who loves God with his heart who has trusted Christ as his Savior, who the Holy Spirit resides in, and who has surrendered his will to the will of God. He has said, as the psalmist did, Oh, that my ways were thy ways. I'm going to take the will that I have, the flesh nature that still exists, and I'm going to, I'm going to put it down, I'm going to crucify it, I'm going to die to self, and I'm going to take my will, and I'm going to make sure that my will lines up with God's will. And this is the spiritual man that the Bible speaks of. But you know, the Bible also speaks of a third type of a man. It speaks of a carnal man. A carnal man is a man who has trusted Christ as his Savior, but still lives like a lost man. He still lives under the law of sin and death. Romans speaks of this. We have three types of people. The carnal man, the natural man, and the spiritual man. The question today is, which one are we? There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And by this, I, I want us to ask ourselves the question, am I right according to Scripture? Not according to what I think is right or feel is right in my soul, but am I right according to Scripture? Do I have the Holy Spirit of God guiding and directing me to point my life to the things that God teaches and the commands that God teaches in Scripture? We've, we've taught on some, some uh, standards recently. We've taught on uh, things that we say with our mouth. We've taught on the way that we should act and the way that we should appear, the way that we should dress, the way that we should handle ourselves. And, and we've dealt with some of these things on a very, very specific level. The truth of the matter is there is a chance that some of us can outwardly be doing these things and conforming to them and the inside not be what it should be. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but then there are the ways of death. 
We find here that Paul says that there is a natural man who cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. My first question today, and I know it's a Sunday morning, and I know this is our crowd, but my question this morning is, are you saved? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Because the truth of the matter is this, that if the Holy Spirit of God does not indwell you, if He does not live inside of you, and you try to understand the things of God, they're not going to make any sense to you. And you'll have a way that will seem right, but the end of it is going to be the way of death. Are you saved today? I sat for 13 years in a pastor's home, lost. I have a very strong, strong sense of this. That there are people that sit in the pews of our churches week in and week out that come to church because they feel like it's their, their, their good uh, deed for the week or that it's their Christian duty. And uh, they can go about and tell their friends and their co-workers, well, I went to church last Sunday. But inwardly, there's no change. There's never been a time where they've put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and allowed Him to come into their heart and indwell them. (coughs) Look with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter number 7. Matthew chapter number 7. And let's look in verse number 13. Jesus speaking here, Matthew chapter (coughs) 7. In verse number 13. Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to what? And how many will there be go in thereat? How many does it say? Many. Many there be that go in thereat. But notice what he says in verse number 14. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Why is this way so narrow? Why is this, this way to life such a narrow thing? Well, because God has said, in John John chapter number 14, if you will look with me there, Jesus is is speaking here of the fact that He's getting ready to uh, leave them. He's getting ready to go into heaven. In John chapter 14, He says uh, uh, in verse number 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him. You remember Thomas, don't you? He's the one that we know as doubting Thomas. It's interesting that he missed one time being in the fellowship of the disciples, and ever since then he's been saddled with the name Doubting Thomas. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the disciples the first time. When they tried to tell him, he said, I don't believe it unless I see him myself. The next time that Jesus appeared to the disciples, guess what? Thomas was there. In fact, you read Scripture and you check me out on this. You'll never find Christ coming to the disciples again, Thomas not being there. He missed it once. He wasn't going to miss it again. The importance of being where God is at in our lives. He goes on to say, Thomas says, uh, We know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Thomas saith unto him, Lord, uh, verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse number six, Jesus saith unto him, notice this, I am, what's the next word here? The. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by what? But by me. 
It's a narrow way. I was in a, a, a Bible conference a number of years ago at a well-known, back then it was a very well-known uh, Bible college for training preachers of the gospel. And I was there, we had a printing ministry in our church, and we were there representing our printing ministry and offering to print books and literature for churches and pastors. And we had a little booth set up there trying to let people know about the ministry. And a fellow came by and he, he said, I, I'm just graduating with my doctor's degree, and I've done my doctoral thesis, and I was wondering if I could have it printed and put into a book. And, I, and they, he was from this well-known fundamental uh, Baptist uh, uh, college that was uh, very well-known for putting out uh, quality preachers. And I said, well, we'd be glad to. Do you have a copy of it? He said, yeah, I'll bring it by this afternoon. And he brought it by to me. And he handed it to me. And when he handed it to me, the title on the cover page was, The Other Ways to Be Saved. And I handed it back to him without even reading it. And I said, brother, we're not going to be interested in printing this. Because my Bible teaches there's only one way. It's a very narrow way. But it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. By putting our faith in Him and what He did on Calvary. It's the only way we can get to heaven. There's not all these other ways. The Bible says, and even Jesus said, there is a broad way. There are other ways. But they lead to destruction. They don't lead to life. Are you there? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Well, Pastor, I've been in church ever since I can remember. I didn't ask you that. Are you saved? Well, I've taught a Sunday school class, Pastor. I've sung in the choir. I didn't ask you that. Are you saved? I think one of the most difficult things there would be in life would be to get to heaven having sat in the pews of a Bible-preaching church. And all those years thinking, I'm a Christian, to get to heaven and hear God say, Depart from me, I never knew you. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. I'm simply saying this. Has there been a moment, has there been a time, a decisive moment in your life where you've realized that you were a sinner and you could not save yourself? And the only way you were going to be able to be justified and given a home in heaven was by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and His price that He paid on Calvary as payment for your sin and Him alone. Have you put that faith in Him? I'll be real frank with you. There were a lot of years that I believed I was saved. You know why I believed I was saved? Because I had prayed a prayer. I don't even remember what I said in the prayer. But I remember as a young boy, about five years old, kneeling down beside a bed and praying a prayer. And I would look back on that and I'd say, I'm saved because I prayed a prayer. But there was no faith involved in that. There was no taking my, my dependence for my eternal destination and taking it out of my hands and putting it in Christ's hands and saying, Lord, I'm trusting all of you and none of me. If I'm going to get to heaven, it's not going to be by anything I do. It's going to be by what you have done on Calvary for me. Are you saved today? Well, I'm in a Christian family. didn't ask you that. Well, I read my Bible. I didn't ask you that. I, read, I, I pray. I have a time of devotion every day. I didn't ask you that. Are you saved? Because there is a way that seemeth right unto a man. At the end thereof are the ways of death. 
That means it can seem absolutely 100% right to us. But if we've not put our faith and trust in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, as payment for our sin, if we're not trusting that, then we are lost. You say, Pastor, how can you be so rude as to tell me I'm lost? It's only because I care. If I didn't care at all, I wouldn't say a word about it. My heart's desire, and I love what the Apostle Paul said. He said that if it were possible, he would wish himself to be accursed so that his brethren could be saved. Do you understand what Paul was saying? Paul was looking at his people and saying many of them are on their way to hell. And here's what Paul was saying when he said that. He was saying if it would be possible for me to go to hell so that they would not have to, Paul said I'd be willing. That's how much he loved those around him that were lost. My second question today, not only is are you saved, what are we doing to reach others who are not? Paul looked at the lost and was broken for them. When was the last time we spent hours on our knees praying for a lost man? We spoke Tuesday night in our college class a little bit on the subject of revival and the cost of revival. The truth is uh, we enjoy living at the comfort level that we live. We're not willing to pay the price of what it would take many times for God to do a mighty work in our midst. When was the last time we wept over someone that was lost? When was the last time that we missed a meal in order to pray? When was the last time that we missed some hours of sleep in order to pray because our heart was so heavy and burdened for someone that was lost that we knew of, that we cared about? I wish that every one of us, as God's people, would get the heart of the Apostle Paul. I wish we would all have the burden that, Lord, if it were possible, I'd be willing to go and pay their sin in hell if it could have happened. Paul understood that it could not. And so, since he could not go to hell for them, Paul gave the rest of his life. And he gave all of his life sacrificially to try to reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter number 10, if you will turn there for a moment with me and look with me. Mark chapter number 10, verse number 17. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeling to Him. You ever thought of that? This man was so desiring to learn this question, this answer to this question from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was walking away from Him. He comes running to Him and He kneels to Him. Notice this. And asked Him, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. 
defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler here. He was not telling this young man that if he were to do enough, he could make it to heaven. What he was trying to get this young man to realize was, no matter what he was able to do, it would not be enough. It would not be enough. Jesus, in verse number 23, looked around and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And he's not saying by this that a rich man can't make it into heaven. He's saying the rich man trusting in his riches. We understand the context of what this young man was doing. He was trusting his keeping of the commandments. He was trusting his wealth and his affluence, his position in the community as his means to make it to heaven. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answereth again, saith unto him, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches? to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. I've heard preachers preach on this passage before. They spoke of the difficulty. They spoke of a, a gate in Jerusalem that was not even named this till 300 years after Christ left this earth. They talk about a gate called the Needle Gate at Jerusalem and how a camel had to get on his knees and go through the gate. And uh, they talk about humility being a part of salvation. And certainly there is humility in salvation. But God is not, Jesus is not teaching here in this passage that it is difficult. He's speaking here of the impossibility of it. He goes on and he says this in verse number 24. Let's look again at what he, how he words this. He says, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. You say, Brother Greg, how do you know he's speaking of the impossibility of it and not just the hardship of it? Because he tells us that. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Let's see what Jesus said about it, okay? And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is what? Impossible. That's what he was teaching. He wasn't teaching the difficulty of it. He was teaching the impossibility of it. The impossibility of what? Trusting in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It is impossible. With men it is impossible, but aren't you glad the verse doesn't end there? But with God, all things are possible. So much so that Paul told the Romans in the book of Romans that he's able to save them to, uh, in the book of, I'm sorry, to Hebrews. Uh, he says that he's able to save them to the uttermost. It doesn't matter how deep our sin has gotten. In Romans chapter 5, he says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There's not enough sin in this world that can keep you from the love of God and from the ability to be saved. And we as God's people have this wonderful message that this world needs to hear. And my second question is, what are we doing with it? 
If we've already answered the first and said, Pastor, I know that I'm saved. I've had a time in my life where I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Then what are we doing to reach others with this wonderful news? Look with me in James chapter number 2. We'll be finishing here in just a moment. James chapter number 2. Let's look in verse number 10. This world needs to understand this. Our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers need to understand this. I don't know how many times I've asked the question, how how does one person get to go to heaven? How do you get to go to heaven? I've had people ask the question this way to to a parent. If your children asked you how to go to heaven, what would you tell them? And I don't know how many times I've heard them say, well, you've got to live good. You've got to have a good, clean life. I, I try to do right. And God knows my heart. Notice what the Bible says here in James chapter 2, verse number 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in what? One point. He is guilty of that one point? Is that what it says? No, he's guilty of what? He's guilty of all of it. That means if I have failed in one area of the law, that my guilt is sealed. There isn't the idea that if my good outweighs my bad, that God will let me into heaven. That is not the truth. The Bible says if I have failed in one point, in one point, that I am guilty of all. That's why, God, that's why Paul could tell the Romans in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of it. We do not meet the standard of God. That's why he says that because of Adam, because of one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so sin passed upon all men for that all have sinned. But I'm thankful that Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross. And Paul told the Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, what a joy to know that not only can we be saved, but we can do it by simply putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not by our works. It's not by our church membership. It's not by our baptism. It's not by our good deeds, but by our faith. Question one is, are you saved today? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? And question number two is, what are we doing with the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? What are we doing to share this wonderful news that we have been partakers of with those that need to hear it? There are times. I shared a moment a few months ago Where I had an opportunity to talk with a fellow about the gospel. And Jonathan was with me at the time we were at a restaurant, and there was a guy that we had met a few times before. And the opportunity was so apparent, and I missed the opportunity. And for days. In fact, even now, it's still even hard to talk about. I think we, I think we ought to have times and seasons where we uh, go out and, and 
on purpose, share the gospel with people. But can I tell you this? We ought not to be just thinking of it as I go out an hour a week to tell people about the gospel. We ought to live our lives conscious of those that are lost around us. And with the opportunities being watched for, it's amazing how many times at a, at a gas pump, pumping fuel, someone will strike up a conversation with you. Or you may strike up a conversation with them. How often in a restaurant when the hours are not real busy and the waitress is there and they're, they're, they're socializing with you in between their duties and they've got time to sit and talk and we miss those opportunities. What are we doing to reach others with the gospel? I believe very strongly that we're living in the very last days. I think that the coming of the Lord is just around the corner. I won't put a date or a time on it, and it may be long after I'm dead and gone. I don't know. But I believe it's going to be soon. And if that's the case, then should we not be more diligent day in, day out to reach people with the Gospel before He comes back? Should it not motivate us to be even more determined? I want to share the Gospel with somebody who needs to hear I don't know, this morning in a, in a congregation like this, and this being our normal crowd and just a, a few visitors around, I don't know who needs to be saved in this room or if any do. But I would certainly want to make sure everyone was given opportunity. I do know this, that those of us that are saved, that have trusted Christ as our Savior, we have a great, great responsibility. God has entrusted the most precious truth that He has. He's entrusted it to our hands to take it to a lost world that needs to hear what are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? Oftentimes we miss a time of opportunity. In the case that Jonathan and I experienced here a few months ago, a couple of times we've tried to go and see if he was available again and see if he's sitting outside and he's not the opportunity has passed and uh, I don't know if before God's return he'll give us that same opportunity again and because we don't know that that opportunity will ever be afforded to us ever again it makes it that much more urgent that we be not only sensitive to but obedient to those times of opportunity because it may be the only opportunity we have. What are we doing with the gospel that God has entrusted to us that are saved? Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. I know I'm preaching a message that our people know there's no new material that's given today, but certainly is needful for reminders to us. We're living in very troublesome times and times where God's coming is very, very near, I believe. <coughs> if that be the